It's 2024, and in Westminster, an election is at the forefront of everyone's minds. My working assumption is we'll have a general election in the second half of this year. I want the election to be as soon as possible. We're ready for it. Downing Street, their plan A is to go probably in the autumn rather than December. Step back a little further, and across the UK, millions of us are more concerned with how we'll afford to pay our sky-high rents or energy bills. We get inundated with messages. People will say, oh, I've put all my money into my gas and electric this week and we've got no nappies or we've got no bread and milk. I've noticed a big difference in the cost of living in Burnley and it's crazy. The prices are just going out of control. Two years ago, we were able to afford more than we do now and mum's still able to pay like for the gas and electric and all that, but now, well, can't really, can't really do that now. Zoom out further again, and we see a world where billions of people are reckoning with the threat of the climate crisis. Let's turn now to three extreme climate events around the globe. A record heat wave in Japan, major flooding in Australia, and a deadly avalanche in northern Italy. Record-breaking heat waves in northwest India and Pakistan are a hundred times more likely because of climate change. That's according to a Met Office study. The United Nations estimates that drought brought on by the effects of climate change could displace as many as 700 million people by the end of this decade. So, you'd be forgiven for feeling a little overwhelmed. These problems have been centuries in the making, kicked off by capitalism and colonialism, turbocharged by neoliberalism, and cemented with austerity. So, how do we understand the economy and the world we're living in? And more importantly, how can we start to dismantle the ideas and systems that threaten everything we hold most dear? Welcome back to a new series of the New Economics Podcast. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. This week, I'm delighted to be joined down the line by Danny Sriskandaraja, the brand new Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation. Hi, Danny. Hi, Aisha. Thanks so much for being with us. I didn't butcher your last name, did I? No, perfect. Very good. Fantastic. Right. So I think we'll have to start with the obvious question. We're at the start of 2024 and the media and political parties are all gearing up for what we expect will be an election year in the UK. So how do you think this election will be characterised, Danny? And what do you think the key battlegrounds for the left will be? A softball. As we as we yeah. start, <laughs> no. Well, look, no shortage of potential battlegrounds, right? I mean, the sorts of issues that are facing Britain and the world today are enormous. You know, whether it's um, rising prices, rising poverty, skyrocketing inequality, a climate crisis, an international system that's falling apart. Uh, I could just go on and on with the big challenges facing us. My worry is that the election itself will be incredibly underwhelming in terms of the policy ideas on offer um, in this election, right? And I think by all accounts, we're heading into an election season in the UK, which will be about trading short-term knee-jerk solutions, uh, you know, between the big parties about, you know, how to stop the boats or uh, meet the fiscal rules or reduce inflation. They're all important things. But the sorts of policy ideas that are taking shape at this stage 
don't come anywhere near close enough, I think, to addressing those big picture challenges. And I'd go one step further around the election, which is, yes, you know, this election will be huge. And the fact that two billion of us around the world are going to be voting this year in you know the busiest year of elections in human history, that's great in some ways. But it's also, for me, deeply problematic because I think we're seeing democracies falling apart in many parts of the world, you know, Voter confidence in politics is at an all-time low. Um, there's voter apathy. There's mistrust in not just the politicians, but the information that we're being presented. And so I think we have a crisis in terms of the policy solutions that we need to fix those big issues. But laid on top of that, we've got a crisis in democracy in terms of the means and mechanisms by which we can address those big policy challenges. Okay, so as the new head of the New Economics Foundation, a very exciting set of challenges, as you say, for you to be stepping up to the plate at this time. Um, what do you think NEF will be contributing in the lead up to the election? Well, I hope NEF will continue its sort of long 40 odd year tradition of being able to play in the now, contribute practical, tangible ways in which we can make the economy that much fairer, where we can make policies that much better, but at the same time, offer the more radical, long-term, inspiring solutions that will, I hope, contribute to some of those uh, big challenges. I mean, any good think tank, I think, needs to do a bit of both, stay relevant for today's debate, but also contribute and anticipate tomorrow's debates. And, you know, it, from having watched NEF on the outside for many years, I think NEF's been particularly good at doing those things simultaneously. So taking a step back, 2024, of course, also marks 40 years since a very important event, the other economic summit. Uh, this was the event that led to the formation of NEF. Some listeners will know about it, but I'm sure lots won't. So can you tell us what the summit was and why it took place? Yeah, no, thanks for asking, because it's been one of the most fascinating bits of my first few weeks at NEF to learn about the history of this wonderful organisation. And it begins, as you say, almost 40 years ago, with a, a group of radical economists, ecologists and others worried about the fact that Margaret Thatcher, then Prime Minister, was about to host the G7 summit. And so President Reagan was about to arrive in the UK. And these guys were worried that, um, in fact, I think they called the G7 summit itself profoundly irrelevant and you know, gave the summit no chance whatsoever of coming up with the sort of solutions the world needed. And so they set about creating an alternative summit, as you say, the other economic summit, as they called it. And it was literally held at the same time Thatcher was hosting the G7 leaders a few hundred metres away. A few hundred alternative economists and others gathered together to air very different ideas that challenged the sort of neoclassical orthodoxy that was being presented. And they held those summits a couple more times. And then they decided, actually, rather than just have one-off events, they needed a permanent space, a permanent institution, not just to come up with policy ideas, but push the ideas um, further. And that is how the New Economics Foundation was created uh, in 1986, a couple of years after the first of those summits. And I literally read the letter from the Ecology Party, which was the previous name for the Green Party, calling for this alternative economic summit. And, you know, they had a sort of 10-point challenge for the world in 1984, right? And if you read those 10 points, almost word for word, they would be highly relevant today. You know, in 1984, these guys were saying, for example, GDP was too crude a measure 
to calculate human well-being. They were saying, for example, that our standard of living as humans could only be pursued at the extraction of the biosphere. You know, something 40 years on, we've come to realize, sadly, is has been too true. They were saying that the international banking system was on the verge of collapse and we needed a new way of, of managing global finances. And, you know, in, in some ways, it's a sort of bittersweet moment for an organization like ours, and I suspect for many of the listeners here, that here we are in 2024, not having learnt the lessons of what a wrong path we've pursued when it comes to the way that we've managed our societies, our economies, our politics. And we will do our best this year to mark this anniversary, but I hope it's in a moment to sort of reignite the passion that drove the creation of the the New Economics Foundation. Mm, Bittersweet, certainly. I feel like, you know, it is arguably quite depressing, as you say, to look at that list of 10 and think um, of just how much we haven't achieved. But There have been some wins and some things that, you know, have gone well. What has Neff learned from the last 40 years that you're taking forward in the leadership? You're right. We should, you know, I I didn't mean to sort of depress listeners because, you know, if you take something like the realisation that we're in a climate crisis, I think there's been considerable progress and it's not been fast enough, but growing numbers of people around the world, including in this country, recognise that we can't go on like this. I'm not sure all our politicians do, but certainly vast proportions of of the human population, I think, recognise that something fundamental needs to change. And we've got to give ourselves some credit for being able to raise public awareness and public concern about these sorts of issues. And I hope NEF's played its part in that. You know, ideas like the Green New Deal were being rehearsed here at NEF 20 years ago. In fact, we've got a library in our... um, in the office in in South London. And it's chock-a-block full of books that were written decades ago with titles like The Green New Deal or The Wellbeing Economy. Um, Again, ideas whose time should have come long ago, but whose time will come. And, you know, that's the responsibility for our generation of activists is to make sure that we can deliver on some of those aspirations. Okay, so looking beyond the UK, which we've done a little bit already in this conversation, but before you came to NEF, you ran Oxfam GB, and prior to that were Secretary General of Civicus, which is the Global Civil Society Alliance. These are organisations with an international perspective looking at global issues. So what lessons do you think progressives in the UK can learn from international civil society and international movements for that matter? Do you think it's important for progressives to be connected around the world? And and if so, why? Yeah, I think um, lots of lessons, a, a few maybe to share for now. One is that, and you know, coming back to your point about hope, you know, when I worked at Civicus and at Oxfam, one of the things that kept me positive and inspired was all across the world, there are brilliant people doing amazing things, you know, individual activists with um, no formal qualifications, no big institution behind them who are managing to change societies. And, you know, there is a generation of people who are doing things very differently, who are challenging norms, who are demonstrating that a, a, a new world or another world is possible. And I think that's a lesson that I take that we, you know, let's look at those sort of um examples of people doing wonderful things. Secondly, around the world, where there has been success in terms of of pushing public opinion or changing policy, more often than not, it's been about building power from below, right? I think the lesson we all have to remember is you can't just treat people as, you know, in a sort of instrumental way, say you've got all the ideas and here here they are, um, you know, take it or leave it. 
I think that's part of the price we're paying in terms of the sort of distrust in politics and distrust in expertise even, is that for too long, including progressives, I think, we've ended up not taking the sort of hard, heavy lift of organising, of building power within communities seriously enough, right? I think it's far better that we come up with policy solutions for the world that are co-created with communities that um, that we care about, that we work with, and not just, you know, produced in an ivory tower or in an elite think tank. And thirdly, a, a lesson that has really struck me in the last couple of years is how deeply interconnected we are, right? You know, there is no major challenge that we face that doesn't have inherently global dimensions to it. Climate change, inequality, digital security, all of these challenges in, you know, need international cooperation. We've got an international system that's failing to deliver that. We've just had a climate negotiation a few months ago where you know, people were celebrating that they managed to get the words fossil fuel into a global climate agreement. I mean, how on earth is that considered success in 2024? How on earth can we have had 28 different sets of climate negotiations for us now to realize finally that fossil fuels need, you know, consumption and production need to be curbed? Or similarly, when it comes to, you know, the power that's wielded by big tech, tech companies and how freely our governments have given away our privacy, our digital identities. We need much better, smarter international collaboration. And so I think one lesson I hope we learn is that we need to be better connected as, as progressives with each other, with the issues that we work on and come up with global solutions to some of these global challenges. Mm, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And obviously, as as uh, someone who also works in an organisation with New Economy in the title, um, my next question, I suppose, is how do you see the the UK New Economy movement slotting into that broader global landscape that you just outlined? Well, I think there is a um, a proud history and tradition here, and you know, it's not a surprise that organisations like NEF and NEON. Uh, others have had the space to at least grow and thrive in, in the British environment. So that's, uh, at, you know, in many other parts of the world, there aren't, there isn't the political space, there aren't the economic resources to support these sorts of initiative. And so in some ways, it comes with the leadership responsibility, I think we have to be able to nurture our like-minded communities around the world. Um, but then I hope there's also a bit of humility, because long gone are the days in which Britain can export ideas to the rest of the world, right? And I think, um, we need to work in solidarity with people and not um, assume that we know best. And um, it's something the international development sector is coming to terms with sometimes in a, uh, in a difficult way. Um, but I think those of us in the new economy movement also need to think about how do we find ideas and solutions and build power in the global south, for example, and not just assume that we've got the answers that can be exported to other parts of the world. Mm. Just out of interest from some of the experience you've had, what would you say are some of the potential areas for, I guess, kind of this shared learning that you're talking about? An example is, you know, when I've worked in the US, I found that it's really interesting to look at how, you know, their federalized system means that certain things are possible at an economic policy level that are not here, for example, even though we have some, you know, our own form of devolution. But yeah, things like that, I suppose, do you have any uh, things that you've seen that you've thought, oh, we could do with a bit of that? 
Yeah. Uh, well, one that comes to mind is the way that we organize our sort of corporate or business entities, right? We sort of, you know, in, in countries like the UK, we assume that the sort of contemporary corporate entity, the sort of shareholder capitalist model, is the be all and end all of the way that the world is organized. And it's far from the truth. You know, in most parts of the world, especially in the global south, there's far, it's far more prevalent um, to have cooperatives, employee-owned organizations. We organize the economy in very different ways. And I think we should learn from each other that, you know, maybe our, you know, for, for countries like the UK, it's about going back to the future, going back to ways in which we can organize the economy so that we can democratize the way that shareholding works or employee ownership works. That's much more than norm in many parts of the world that I've, I've visited because we haven't yet had the sort of, you know, the dominance of shareholder capitalism in those economies. So that's a sort of reverse engineering in some ways of the way that modern capitalism has evolved uh, in places like this. And the good news is it exists in other parts of the world. It exists in British history. I mean, you know, cooperatives and responsible forms, formations of capitalism were, again, far more prevalent in British history like 100 or 200 years ago, right? So we shouldn't take for granted that somehow these mega corporations with sort of nameless, faceless shareholders who drive everything on, on the basis of short-term return is actually how we should organize our economy. So you know, that's one thing that comes to mind. Yeah, that's a super good example. I think I've always, it's one of the things I've always loved about NEF is this idea, idea of playing with the meaning of the word radical, right? It's kind of radical to whom, or kind of in terms of the ideas themselves, it's to what extent are we saying that something is, as you say, novel, new, perhaps radical, perhaps out there versus actually, this is something that's already been done a long time ago. It may be back to the future. It may be borrowing a concept from somewhere else. Um, yeah, I really like that idea. So when we talk about the economy, it's quite a nebulous concept, as many of our previous podcasts would attest uh, to. So we hear a lot of metaphors. You know, we compare the economy to the weather. We say choppy waters, economic headwinds. We talk about household budgets, pies in the sky, all these, all these extended metaphors. So what effect do you think that metaphors have on our understanding of how the economy works or how we speak about the economy? How does that affect how we think about it? Yeah, hugely, I think. It, it reminds me of when I was a, a sort of undergraduate many, many decades ago, and I, I started doing an economics degree, but it was a political economy degree that involved very alternative approaches to both sort of politics and economics. And one of the things I learned was that almost all of the things we think are sort of these sort of so-called golden rules are all made up and most or many are completely wrong, right? And yet there's a sort of, you know, the dismal science or the pseudoscience that is economics, right? We've built up over decades this idea that economics is a, is a hard science, if you will, um, that there are these rules. It's not true. And we should really challenge this, um, some of the language we use, uh, including the metaphors, but also question uh, those who do continue to uh, um, talk about these things as if they're set in stone and immutable. Yeah, I mean, this is something that's come up on the podcast a lot. You know, obviously, there was this joint project between NEF and NEON and PERC and a few other organizations a number of years back called Framing the Economy, you know, where we looked at the kind of metaphors that help and hinder us when it comes to, to thinking about the economy. And I definitely encourage listeners to download that. I know it's still available online. It's really interesting. But I think we've definitely, exactly as you say, found ourselves often kind of hitting a wall when it comes to how we even approach conversations about the economy. And it often feels that that's deliberate. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a method of gatekeeping. It's about telling certain people this isn't for you. And again, it's, it's part of Neff's brilliant lineage is kind of starting to actually say, 
no, we can understand, you know, everyone can understand this, everyone can and should be getting involved. And it links back to your earlier point about organising, right? It's everyone should be involved in the conversation. And and here's where I come back to the sort of politics point you started with around elections, which is, it's been a double whammy, right? It's a sort of economic disempowerment to tell people more and more people in the world, this is not for you, you you know, trust us, we'll, we'll decide on how the economy should work. And by the way, we'll make shed loads of money as we do. But at the same time, we've been fed this lie, that representative electoral democracy is as good as it will ever get in terms of the way that we can participate as democratic beings, right? Again, why should we settle for a vote every five years in which we're given a choice between two very similar looking political parties in a first-past-the-post system and say that that's good enough? It's not so we've been disempowered economically and not even allowed to contribute to questioning economic orthodoxy, while at the same time disempowered politically. So we're not shaping the sort of democratic decisions that we should all be entitled to co-create and uh, and and do. And no wonder then, where you know we've got rising economic inequality, rising political disenfranchisement or disillusionment, and. You know, before we know it, we will have serious social turmoil, um, or you know, the social fabric will be ripped apart. And I, this is my, this is what I lament: that very few political leaders in the mainstream are willing to talk about all of this because they're too busy just plodding along with business as usual, trying to win the very next election or get past the very next budget. Absolutely. I mean, part of what we're in the business of doing here on the podcast is a little bit of economic myth busting, how I like to spend my evenings. Um, And so, you know, over a decade on from the introduction of austerity policies, politicians on all sides of the spectrum are still saying there's not enough money. You know, we need to tighten our belts. There's a scarcity mindset that says, you know, Unfortunately, we just can't afford to properly fund the services that we need. What say you on that, you know, on the austerity myth and the, yeah, the scarcity mindset that, that bolsters it? Well, yeah, so obviously I, I agree with you that we need to challenge the, the mindset. And, and in some ways, you know, when we had the COVID pandemic, uh, many of you will remember, many of the listeners, who I hope, will remember that, you know, Rishi Sunak, then Chancellor, stood up at the dispatch box in week two or three of the pandemic in the UK and said he's going to throw out the fiscal rule book and introduced a series of measures that were eye-watering in their scale, right, in terms of government fiscal intervention. They were eye-watering in the way that they subsidize business and put, you know, all of that doctrine of austerity was actually what got thrown out the window, right? So, you know, even conservative politicians seem prepared to throw away the rule book. And I think we need to ask ourselves, well, what, why is that rule book there? Um, you know, if we're faced in a once in a generation or, or even bigger sort of crisis in terms of the, what's happening in climate change, we need a once in a generation system of investing for us to sort of save humanity or our what the way of life as we know it. And that will need a very different approach. And again, very few political leaders are talking about it in those terms. And instead, it's about sort of how do we protect the status quo and the vested interests that, you know, keep the status quo as it is. Mm, and, you know, as you say, how do we kind of continue to play within certain boundaries or rules of what seems sensible. Um, And, you know, as we've been unpacking, what often seems sensible is a kind of set of parameters that are built on sand. It's, you know, when we're thinking about the UK budget, like a household budget, of course, you know, then when it comes to balancing the books, as they say, it's we've spent lots of money, so now we need to tighten our belts. But I think we all need to kind of be 
proliferating this much broader understanding of what the economy is and how it functions um, and how it's actually a lot more complex than that. But the benefits of that mean that we can, in fact, engineer it to serve people a lot better than it currently does. Look, I mean, having worked at Oxfam for five years, um, I've come to know and love the work Oxfam's been doing on economic inequality and particularly extreme inequality, right? And that, you know, that's as clear an example I think you can get of the sort of lie that we've been sold. We've been told that, you know, this way of organizing our economy is the best way of promoting you know, prosperity and and leveling the playing field. But we're sleepwalking into an inequality crisis of an unprecedented scale, right? You know, the world's billionaires got cumulatively richer in the last two years than the previous 14 years put together, right? You know, during the pandemic, which is supposed to be the great leveler, which is going to bring humanities together, there was a new billionaire created every 26 hours, according to Oxfam Research, Right. And so at some point, the system is going to break. And, you know, if you look at a group like the Patriotic Millionaires, these are a bunch of rich people who've come to the realization that the ultra rich or the ultra wealthy are basically getting away uh, with, you know, the biggest wealth transfer seen in human history. And it's not sustainable. And so what they're calling for is higher. These are billionaires and millionaires calling for higher taxes, including on wealth, right? And yet the mainstream of politics assumes that, of course, we can't have any wealth taxes because that would be awful. That would be anti-entrepreneurship and uh, it will create a disincentive. So, you know, it's a, I can't think of a clearer way in which the current system is broken But also, I can't think of at the same time, rather depressingly, a clear example of where we can't even have the honest, constructive conversation about how to rein in inequality because the political space isn't there, the permission isn't there to have that robust conversation in the mainstream. Mm, even if you're literally a millionaire saying, please tax me. (laughs) How? (laughs) Yeah, no, it it, it does beg a belief, doesn't it? Okay, so let's talk about climate. Climate deniers have recently shifted from rejecting the concept of climate change to arguing that efforts to halt it would would cost too much. And this has, of course, been a really big kind of political football at the moment used in the run up to the election around who is saying the best thing on climate, which appears to be the thing that which exists at the intersection of doing something, but not it not costing anything or impacting anyone. So how do we convince people that preventing climate breakdown and tackling the cost of living crisis are in fact not mutually exclusive? Well, I think that we'd start with that, the first part of your, your question around sort of challenging this idea around, you know, is this really a cost, right? Because I think investing in a just transition is an investment. It's something we have to do if we want to have a happy, successful future. And so we should we should stop framing it as some sort of cost in the way it, it certainly it should be seen as an investment. And similarly, we should be questioning this rhetoric that we've, you know, well, let me put it this way. There's a fundamental challenge, which is even the cost models that we've had, you know, the costings and pricing systems that underpin our modern economic system chronically undervalue the costs of nature, right, or costs on nature of our activities. And so I think it's also important to sort of work out without being sort of crude and economistic and trying to sort of quantify and, you know, monetize everything, start to say that we've, you know, again, we've been misled 
that the sort of balance sheets that we're familiar with cover everything because they don't. They don't cover the costs of pollution. They don't cover the costs of carbon emissions. They don't cover the costs of loss of biodiversity and so on. And so I think we've got to start doing a better job of framing the sort of balance sheet, if you will, as possible. Similarly, you know, when I worked in international development and, you know, visited some of the places that Oxfam worked in, it was clear that the costs of climate breakdown are being paid by some of the poorest and most marginalized communities in the world that had almost nothing to do with climate breakdown, right? A pastoralist community in Somalia is arguably the sort of least impactful lifestyle one can have in terms of climate change. And yet they're suffering the worst drought in living memory, four or five successive seasons of failed rains. And so there are people paying the ultimate price the ultimate cost in terms of what's happening in climate. But, you know, if you bring it back to this sort of tension between or the, the alleged tension between domestic self-interests and, you know, what's happening in the rest of the world is we could stick our heads in the sand and say, actually, that's someone else's problem. Let the Somalis deal with it. We'll just build ever higher fences and become, you know, fortress Europe. Or we could actually say, it's in our mutual interest to come up with joint solutions that will make life better for those at the, you know, on the front lines of climate breakdown, because ultimately it's in everyone's interest that we take this sort of joint action. And I do think we need to find new and better ways of, of doing that. And I think the promising news, and I think Neff's done some of this research as well in the past, is that when you do spend time with communities, when you do look at public opinion and you go beyond the sort of immediacy of national politics, people get that. People understand that we are in this together. There is only one planet. And we will all of us have to make some form of, you know, sacrifices or changes in our lifestyle. But people seem bit more prepared to that. You know, there was some fantastic citizen assembly work done a few years ago, you know, where people all across the world spent a day together, sort of representative samples of different communities, and asked to come up with their policy mix of, of what needed to happen to address climate change. And the promising news is what people came up with far more ambitious than what our politicians and diplomats were able to do through their sort of horse trading at these big negotiations, right? So I think and given the chance and the opportunity, most of us are prepared to put aside our narrow self-interest and come up with better solutions that will work in mutual interest. I am optimistic that we can and will win this argument. Hmm. Perhaps I am. It's interesting. Before you, before before you started answering, uh, I felt much less optimistic. So there you go. You've you've converted one person. Good. Um, yeah. Let's carry on in that vein. We've talked a lot in this episode about you know the huge challenges that are facing the UK and the world beyond in in coming years. You know, as we've said, you've been working on these huge difficult issues for most of your working life. So, what are the things which give you hope um, that we can achieve the change we need? So. When you put aside the sort of politics, when you sort of push aside our political intermediaries, I think most people will act in the common good. And that gives me hope. I think the ability that we now have to be able to sort of organize and mobilize is unprecedented, right? You know, when I was growing up, if we wanted to organize a protest, you'd have to, you know, pick up the old style phone and dial people and hope they were home and say, look, do you mind coming to this march that we're organizing? Or you'd hope that people would turn up and the message would carry. And now at the press of a button, cheaply, you can do all sorts of connectivity online and offline. And so, you know, in some ways we have the tools 
to be able not just to organize and mobilize in new ways, but I think fundamentally reshape how democracy can work. We can show that truly deliberative democracy is possible. And again, it's this idea that we shouldn't take for granted that this form of democracy that we have is the best we can do. We can do much better and we've got the tools. Now, it's a priority to take back public ownership of some of those tools. I mean, it's, it's perverse that in the 21st century, the sort of public arena is so heavily privatized, or worse still, that in that public arena, our own digital identities are being commodified and sold. We need to take back public ownership and then use that in a meaningful way to create more meaningful liquid forms of democracy that will themselves, I think, help democratize the economy um, and the way that we organize ourselves economically. Mm, I don't think this will come as a surprise to listeners based on some of your answers, but you've written a book (laughs) um, which is coming out later this year, which talks about participation in democracy. So what were just a sprinkling of some of the interesting things you discovered when you were writing it? Yeah, uh, so the book's called Power to the People, How We Can Make This the Century of the Citizen. I've used that framing because I do think this should be the century of the citizen, right? This is the century in which we should feel and be empowered, connected. And it's not. I mean, everywhere I look, one of the th- the sad things I've seen and, and felt, especially in my time at Civicus, is that conditions for, for people power, if you will, are getting worse, not better, almost everywhere in the world. There's only 3% of the world's population that lives in a country that Civicus considers is truly open when it comes to civic freedoms, you know, the right to to freedom of assembly, right to freedom of uh, association and so on. That's a tragedy that we're still, you know, we're in that situation and instead we have a rise of autocracy and rise of uh, attacks on human rights and civic freedoms. But on the other hand, as I said right earlier in this discussion, I think in researching the book, I've encountered all sorts of amazing people who are taking and doing amazing things, whether that's Oigar or Ejmi in uh, in Turkey, who's built a platform called Good for Trust, which is you know he calls a prosumer platform. I think Amazon, but the sort of ethical platform in which that boundary between producer and consumer is blurred, right? So you know that everyone contributes to this digital platform, sometimes to sell things, sometimes to buy things. They co-create stuff, they co-purchase stuff. It's far more empowering and sustainable than the sort of digital platforms we've gotten used to. Or, you know, Nasima al-Sada, who in Saudi Arabia a few years ago launched the campaign to allow women to drive because Saudi Arabia was the last country in the world that didn't allow women to drive. But she and others, you know, used social media to convince the Saudi authorities to change the policy at huge risk. She was imprisoned and I've, in fact, lost touch with her because she's, I think, still under house arrest. But a brave, amazing activist who took huge risks to change a really ridiculous policy. And I could go on, you know, countless examples of people doing wonderful, amazing things to build a a better society around them. And, And I think, I hope the lesson, the big lesson in the book is, you know, we spend so much of our time talking about the economy. We spend so much time talking about the state. You know, we talk about what companies doing well or not, what politicians doing well or not. We spend so little time talking about the third pillar of human life, which is how we as citizens organize and mobilize. Right, what we do together in what we call civil society. And that, to me, is the third pillar of society that we need to reinvest in. And we need to do that so that we as citizens can hold capital to account and hold the state to account far more effectively. Because I think what I've seen over the last few decades is that the power of the state and power of the market have trumped 
us as citizens, and increasingly those two collude, right? The countless examples of very rich people colluding with very powerful politicians, or in the case of some, let's look across the Atlantic, very rich people being very senior, senior politicians, or even our own prime minister, the first prime minister in British history to be on the rich list, right? And so a, a key ingredient, a critical ingredient to building a new economy, to building a better democracy, I will argue in this book, is about rebuilding the power of people. I mean, yeah, exactly as you were saying, it links back to, I don't know if we've hit our quota of saying neoliberalism three times on this podcast yet. Uh, I think usually... Neoliberalism, there you go, a couple more. No, 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 if you say it too many times, Margaret Thatcher will appear behind you, ah. so don't, you've got to, to be careful. Uh, but no, I was going to say, it's exactly as, as you were just saying, you know, that the idea of the, the state and the economy, the state and the market colluding, it's kind of neoliberalism 101, right? It's how can we set up a state that can better facilitate the functioning of the market and, and we define who gets to be key players in that. Um so now we have covered all the massive topics, I think, like international development, neoliberalism, uh, world peace, uh, the global economy, climate change, um, democracy. I feel like we've covered a lot of good stuff. Uh, so I want to end with a quick fire round to get to know you better, Danny, the man, the new leader of NEF. I've got some questions here. Maybe I'm going to go. I think I might go with my own. I think I might, I'm going to pick one of these. So we'll, th we'll start with a, a softball. So who's your favorite big thinker? Big thinker. She's an author, um, Arundhati Roy, you know, who's be probably best known for fiction. But, you know, in the last decade or so, she's been writing some really powerful essays and doing making some amazing speeches. And I find her work really inspiring and challenges some of the sort of fundamental assumptions we make about the world. So I'd encourage any of your listeners to uh, look up her recent work. Fantastic. OK. Do you prefer cats or dogs? Uh, dogs, for sure. Whoa, that was a really quick response. That's going to be divisive. I'm so lucky because at in the NEF office, we regularly have two dog visitors who oh, I love. Wow. I'd hate what would happen if we had cat visitors. Oh, my gosh. We're going to be losing listeners left, right and centre. He doesn't mean it. He doesn't mean it. Or losing the new <laughs> NEF chief exec. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, okay, um, who is your favourite Spice Girl? So my wife dressed up at our party recently as Sporty Spice. Oh, very good. Very good. And she's Northern, getting some of the listeners back. Nice. Yeah. I like it. Um, what's your horoscope? Uh, Capricorn. What does that mean? What kind of person are you? Uh, absolutely no idea. A person who doesn't know what their star <laughs> sign means. Okay, okay. I'm sure that's a type. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, whether I, well, I haven't received it, but I've read it. And it's Gandhi, which is that line, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. And I think that's hugely inspiring in two ways. One is that it's a sort of reminder that each of us can make profound differences like he did. You know, he was an elite lawyer at London trained that, you know, rather unexpectedly becomes the leader of one of the most important sort of civic movements, nonviolent movements in the world, right? And so each of us has that potential, I think, to do some powerful things, even if they don't result in change that we see in our own lifestyle or in a lifetime, or if they fail profoundly. And the other thing is, is that the how matters as much as the what, right? And I, I saw that in, in Oxfam, sometimes in, in very difficult circumstances, but you can't just go around saying, you know, this is what needs to happen. This is, I know best. Because, you know, unless we build inclusive movements, until, unless we're conscious of our own power and privilege in the way that we do things, um, we can't achieve the change that we want to see in the world. So be the change you want to see in the world. 
Lovely. Well, that's a, as good a place to end as any, I would say. That is all we've got time for this episode of the new Economics Podcast, but it's the first in a new series, so don't worry, lovely listener. Danny, thank you so much for being with us. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? Reminders of your book? Well, they first go to neweconomics.org. Uh, which has a fantastic repository of the work that NEF has done in the past and some of our current work. And the book is called Power to the People. It'll be out in July in the UK. Fantastic. That is it for today's new economics podcast, but we'll be back soon with more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. To find out about becoming a NEF supporter, you can visit neweconomics.org. The New Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Katrina Gaffney, James Rush and Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.